gotta freeze them because his story is I'm in the 40s, I get frozen, I come back out in modern day and I join the Avengers, right? And they're already planning all of that. So they, I have a beginning, right? Scrawny guy becomes Captain America, has a career in the army, right? Becomes a hero, a legend, goes into the ice, Right, and then comes back out. So I have a. I have we know it needs to happen. I know it needs yeah, to happen, yeah, yeah. and then they, and they, they say, and then we all kind of talk. And there's a, an obvious first-round draft choice for a villain. He's kind of only had the one, and so you have the Red Skull. And then it's really up to us to try to, you know, fill in what would be a satisfying origin story. Welcome to the Genesis Podcast, featuring interviews with alumni, teachers, and staff from San Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco, with your host. Joe Vollard, the Vice President at St. Ignatius. We have a special podcast today featuring comedian, writer, and actor, Al Madrigal, class of 1989, who will interview renowned writer and producer Stephen McFeely from the class of 1987, who wrote the Captain America and Avenger series scripts and shares his journey from St. Ignatius to being one of the premier screenwriters today. This was the first time that Al and Stephen had ever met, though they're in very similar industries. I think you'll really enjoy their conversation as they explore this craft that they have become so adept at. This interview was recorded at the second annual Wildcat Breakfast at SI's campus on Thursday, April 27, 2023, in front of a live audience. That's it. Uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Steve McFeely. Uh, I'm here. So this is exciting. You said you still think about that game-winning shot versus well, SH I mean, all the time. I, like, really, I averaged uh, maybe 3.9 points. You know, so. <laughs> that's a huge and, deal. Uh, yeah, no, we, uh, um, uh, I think that Saturday, it was probably Friday night at Kizar, and then that Saturday, my mom and I drove down to the uh, newsstand uh, in Oakland, we grew up in Oakland, grew up in Oakland. and uh, just usually to get the box score, because you know, at least my name was in the paper. But in this case, there was a headline and it said McFeely delivers for SI. Oh my God, that was, it was, it was also a pun, a, a pun on uh, Mr. McFeely, the mailman for Mr. Rogers, you know, and so I think somebody thought that was amusing, uh, but that was framed on my dad's office wall for years. Yeah. That's amazing. So let's talk about Oakland. So that's probably the first question that any, you meet any San Francisco native and you immediately go, where'd you grow up? Uh, where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go to grammar school? So uh, where did you go to grammar school? And then making the trek from Oakland, you don't hear too many people doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Oakland. Um, my uh, father went to Bellarmine. And so when it was time to pick a high school, he sort of hoodwinked me into, into going to all boys Catholic school. Talking to Joe Vollert that a lot of people do. So you come back to St. Ignatius and you teach English. That's right. Yeah, no, I have sort of two chapters at SI. Um, uh, and so after I got out of Notre Dame in 91 and I had very few thoughts about what I was going to do for a hot second, I was going to... What was your major in, in Notre Dame? I was a double major in English and government. Okay. So I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, and sort of separate story, but about halfway through, I met a, a visiting author uh, who wore cowboy boots and had books in the library, and I said, oh my God, I'd never met a living writer in the flesh, and that sort of 
made it possible in my mind that people did that for a living. Yes, yeah, very important yeah. that we know these jobs exist. They, they did not exist in my regular world. Yes. No. Yeah. And so you teach here for a couple years. Yeah, I had freshmen and sophomores, my first year sophomores and juniors, my uh, second year. So 91, 92, 93. Um, uh, yeah, and then I, uh, I took a year off and applied to grad schools because I knew that I wanted to try writing. That was part of the part of teaching writing uh, or teaching English at SI. I would introduce, particularly uh, juniors, uh, I would introduce American literature. You do about 90 second song and dance about the undoubtedly white male author uh, that we were talking about, right? Uh, and about half the time, I would say, and kids, what did that, what did Robert Frost do before he became an internationally famous poet, he taught high school English. <laughs> he did, didn't he? Uh, and so I, uh, uh, I applied to eight grad schools, got into one, uh, took out a bunch of loans and went to UC Davis. Yeah. UC Davis, known for agriculture, not creative but, writing. No, veterinary, wine. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's where you meet Christopher Marcus. That's right. And because you were the only two guys in the program? Or <laughs> there, were, there were eight of us. Everyone else had very specific uh, disciplines, you know, and we were the smart-ass discipline, you know. So how you, you quickly meet, and the fact that you're still together to this day is incredible, because it's difficult to keep the band together. You know, it, yeah. it really is tough to work and collaborate with somebody for that length of time, or at all. Yeah. So what is it about that pairing that you knew in the very beginning that was going to work? I certainly didn't know at the very beginning. It was, it was comfort, right? With A uh, couple things. Uh, he comes from a similar background, uh, comes from Buffalo, all boys Catholic school. You know, um, uh, and so we had a lot of the same touchstones. Um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was our ch children's book, you know, so that was sure. easy. Uh, it, and when we decided uh, to give it a shot, we basically made a pact, right? It was 1996, I was 26 years old, and we said, we'll give ourselves four years and we'll move to Los Angeles, and if we're not in the game in some way, and I think that meant have an agent, really, uh, then we were going to shake hands at age 30. and and go on and have different lives. So you do what most people do, you move to Los Angeles yep. and you take any gig you can, but you end up working for, is it Mike Toland? Or? Oh yeah, good yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I, Chris, Chris got a job, uh, we basically got jobs answering phones, and then mine led to uh, reading scripts for this fledgling production company, Mike Toland being the, the so you're covering, so, so in an uh, agency or any production office like this, a tremendous amount of scripts are coming through, yeah. Mike can't read them all, so you're covering right. scripts for him, and do you think that led to like, your knowledge of what's good and bad? Oh, you that's a good point. Uh, you certainly, when you read a lot, you, uh, a, a three-act structure becomes kind of uh, natural to you in some ways, but it's also very encouraging, because you're reading a lot and you go, oh, this is crap, and then this person has an agent. Right? I can get an agent. I can write just as much crap like this. So it's, it's, it's oh, it's, it's very empowering. Um, no, it's very funny yeah. that you say that yeah. because the same thing happened to me with stand-up comedy in San Francisco. I went to an open mic yeah. and I went, this is all horrible. <laughs> I could be this horrible. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. It became possible. Again, it's like meeting, uh, the man's name is Barry Lopez, uh, and he's a National Book Award winner. And he was my teacher in college and meeting him uh, you know, again, he wasn't terrible, but like it, it was real, right? Things things became possible uh, when it wasn't. Um, I didn't read about it in a book, you know. 
Yeah, that's amazing. So you're there, you're covering, and then Mike is aware that you're writing a script. So, that's true. He was yeah. very... Uh, his wife, I was working at Nickelodeon licking stamps for the 1996 Christmas card, right? Yeah. Uh, when she said, oh, he's got opposable thumbs uh, and, and a degree in English, right? Maybe my husband, whose production company needs a person, you know, go talk to him, you know? And he's a big sports guy, uh, and I was a sports guy, and so he... Ba but when he hired me, he knew I was, didn't want to be a development guy or read scripts for the rest of my life. So it's actually an important lesson that Chris and I learned. Uh, he said, hey, when you finish your spec script, which is your sample, um, uh, let me read it. And that marked our first break. I did not give him a script for nine months because I knew I only had one chance. You wanted it to be great. It had to be a shiny diamond. And yeah. how quickly, when you are covering, you know this, like how many pages did you read before you decided something was not this is, well, I may answer a question you asked earlier I didn't get yeah. to. One of the reasons Chris and I are pretty good together is because he's plagued with ADHD and I'm plagued with OCD. So I always read all the scripts. I couldn't, well, I couldn't put them down. I had to finish it, right? Uh, but you absolutely know, 10 pages in, this is probably not going to land the plane here. Got it. Yeah. Um, so you get that opportunity. And then talk to me about and tell everyone your first real opportunity is a um, life and death of Peter Sellers yeah. who stars Jeffrey Rush yeah. and that's a huge deal like to talk to, me, uh, to us about the steps leading up to that and how that becomes real yeah um, so we you know we had an agent uh, oh so what I gave that script to Mike. Mike gave it, read it, gave it to two agents. One of them called and said, I want to talk to these guys. And then we were what's called hip-pocketed, which basically means that some junior agent kind of takes you on and makes you the last phone call of the day if he thinks about it, right? So um, uh, that eventually, that leads to a lot of meetings where people say nice things and give you water but not parking validation, right? And then eventually uh, that slowly led to uh, a couple of, in retrospect, not great gigs, right? But one of them got me into the Writers Guild, and that's helpful. Uh, we left that agent, but as soon as we got to the next agent, they got us in a room with HBO, uh, who was making making a biopic, and we basically suggested a kind of a, a weird biopic, right? Where Peter Sellers played all the parts of the people in his life, right? So he would, you know, have a a, a, an argument with his wife and he'd slam the door and, and she'd walk out and slam the door and now instead of being played by uh, Emily Watson it turns around and now it's Jeffrey Rush as Peter Sellers as his wife trying to make the whole thing better. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's weird because he also he made a career out of playing several parts in, in the same movie. Yes, very cool. So, uh, in comedy legend, so and, and then just like in anything in Hollywood, I feel like one opportunity leads to another opportunity, leads to another opportunity. So the, the guy in the director's name escapes me, um, but... For, for Latin Witch? Who's that? Oh, for, for, which, for that movie? For Narnia. Yeah, no. Adam, Andrea Adamson. And sees yeah. your Peter Sellers movie and is a fan yeah, and then yeah. wants you to do punch-ups. So you're baby writers navigating your way yeah. through Hollywood. But also, I would say... Um, I often say this, you cannot pick your first job, right? You just gotta say yes and get in the door. But if you're lucky, you can pick the second one. And so we passed on every biopic sent us after that, right? You can't, there's like three Jackie Gleasons, there's like everyone's Because you're gonna be something. the biopic guy. Well, then, yeah, you're, yeah. then you're in that particular genre, right? Sure. And we just like Peter Sellers. We didn't necessarily like 
biopics. Sure. But you're right, Andrew had read our script, which is a little Charlie Kaufman-esque, right? Like, breaks the fourth wall, we put ourselves in it for a while, you know, uh, as the writers of the movie, it was sort of dopey. Um, but he then said, oh, I want someone, you know, who's good with character to help me, you know, revise Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, because he already had the fantasy element down, and that introduced us to blockbuster filmmaking. And there were, how many Narnia movies you did? Three? There, I mean, my name's on three. Uh, the first and second are ours. We got fired off the third one. Uh, yeah. And what's that experience like? Uh, fired off the third awesome. one? Awesome. It's great to be like, fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're a hell of an interviewer. <laughs> I used to, actually, my mom's here, I used to fire people for a living. I just don't know what it's what? like to be on the other end of it. Um, so, yeah. So. Uh, I did do that. I was a hatchet man. Um, so, so, but but you here you've d you've done uh, two very successful movies for them, ah. and then the third one, different director maybe oh, or long like story, if you yeah. want in the weeds on it. Uh, the first one uh, came out of Christmas 2005, and it made 750 million dollars. Yes. Boom. Everyone's very excited, right? We got to fast track that next one. We got ourselves a golden goose, right? That next one's a darker tale, right? The kids come back after a thousand years and everything has gone to hell. Sure. And, and, and so it's much sadder. And then we made it even sadder just by our decisions, right? It became a darker movie. And then Disney said, you know what? This is a summer movie. It's not a, it's not a winter movie, right? Uh -huh. So they put it out in the middle of summer after, right after a movie that they're sure wasn't going to have any legs called Iron Man. <laughs> uh, and right in front of Indiana Jones. <laughs> so that movie, instead of making $750 million, made 400 and change. And now represents no, no, no. We're not going to do this anymore. Uh, it, Fox picks it up, so Disney dumped it. Fox picked it up, um, and somewhere in there, and I had already been fired. We were on the writers were on strike, and I got a call to say, "Don't come back to Narnia," and that was fine because uh, around that time, because Iron Man had hit, Marvel was feeling themselves and said, "Okay, we're going to make Thor, we're going to make a, a Captain America, and we're going to make Avengers." And so, that's what we chased. And that's where, are you pursuing the Captain America yeah. gigs? or So you're going after, they look at our success here with Narnia, and then you have agents and representatives yeah, like going our, after. Our agent called, before that gets announced, our agent calls and says, they're going to make a Captain America period movie. And we thought that was amazing. Because we'd already been noodling with the idea, you know, because you, know, you have to remember what comic book movies were in 2008 and previous. They, they were not nearly the, you know, kind of as amazing as they have, have become. And we thought it always, just in a vacuum, would be really cool if you could do the hero in the period in which he was invented. Wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, Superman was, you know, fighting Nazis or something, right? So little did we know that they actually were going to do that. And, and so when Captain America came along, we chased it. And we didn't get it. It took a long time because they didn't necessarily think the Narnia guys were, were the right guys to do Captain America. So then talk to me about your approach with an adaptation. So you have Narnia versus coming up with, you know, Captain America's story or that outline, you know, from scratch. So well, that's the thing. It's, uh, I've, I've made a career adapting stuff, so I'm never really starting from scratch. But um, what I try to do is, is take the ingredients given to me and make a, a different meal than maybe you're expecting, right? So in that case, you know, it's supposed to be an origin story because we got to fall in love with that guy. You got to freeze him because his story is I'm in the 40s, I get frozen, I come back out in modern day and I join the Avengers, right? And they're already planning all of that. So they, I have a beginning, right? Scrawny guy becomes Captain America, has a career in the army, right? Becomes a hero, a legend, goes into the ice, 
right? And then comes back out. So I have a, I have We know it needs to happen. I know it needs yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. And then they, and they, they say, and then we all kind of talk, and there's an obvious first round draft choice for a villain. He's kind of only had the one, and so you have the red skull. And then it's really up to us to try to, you know, fill in what would be a satisfying origin story. And how involved are Kevin Feige and Marvel people at that point? Are they sort of dictating what needs to happen, or are you going to them with outlines? No, we are going to them with outlines. What I just said is pretty much what they gave us, right? Got it. Like, here's what, what you have to do, you know. Um, uh, but no, we're, we're the ones sort of inventing all of this, or, or I should say plucking from various comics. Um, and then that, we get more trust along the way, I should say. Like, you know, I was probably nearly fired on the first one because, you know, I didn't, we were trying some things that some people didn't agree and with. And you weren't necessarily a comic book guy, were you? No, I was not. I was a Star Wars guy. I played sports here. Uh, it was sort of a flirtation with Dungeons and Dragons, but I wasn't a, you know, uh, despite what this table might think, I wasn't a super nerd, you know. And and now, are you? Do, have you gone back and read every single bit of Captain America? To get that job, we did, right? So we went down to uh, Golden Apple Books and you know collected all the compendiums, which are all in black and white, which are mm -hmm. all difficult to read because everyone has the same body and a cape, and they're only differentiated by the color of their uniform. So it's a little. You know, mind-numbing after a while. And then, um, I just, if, and I'm interested in the process, like, so we've talked about this outline, but working with a team, talk to us about, like, an any aspiring writer, or um, just how it actually works when you sit down with Chris and you start breaking down. So you do this sort of, like, people talk about vomit draft just to get oh, a draft out, draft out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our process is uh, we outline the heck out of everything. Right, and so those are long days where it doesn't look like much is happening, or it looks, or you can you can spend three hours going down a road and realize it's a cul-de-sac, turn around. You know, it's productive, but that didn't necessarily make it to the board. Mm -hmm. We in the early days we used three by five cards. Anything that got and it was interesting, got a card. You know, um, uh, yeah, particularly say it was life death of Peter Sellers and with Captain America. We would each separately inhale everything we could, write down everything that was interesting to us, give it a card, put it all out on the floor, and, stuck and just stare at it, right? And figure out, you know, what do we both like? What's repetitive? What, you know, if, if the same thing keeps coming up, that's probably thematic, we might go there. Is there a very obvious end of act two, right? Peter Sellers, heart attack, that's a midpoint, because we know his life changed there, right? Uh, Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier, you know, who becomes the Winter Soldier, goes into the ice and dies, right? That might be the end of Act Two. So you're trying to find tent poles along the way. We're very big structuralists. I, I believe our movies hold up pretty well in large part because, you know, they're, they're pretty well structured. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'm sort of a slave to that. Yeah, I think Kevin Feige has, has said that all of the Marvel movies, if you look at them, are it's a western, it's a spy thriller, it's a period piece, yeah. it's a comedy disguised, you know, yeah. so, and then you're tasked with Captain America Civil War, which, well, you know, Winter Soldier and Civil Winter War, Winter yeah. so Soldier and then Civil War, yeah. but Civil War in particular, you have to bring together so many characters, so right. you're doing the same thing with cards on the board saying, we yeah, we graduated to a whiteboard, but yeah, okay, sure. it is that. It's just yeah. everything that, well, actually, that's not, well, for Infinity War, we had cards. But yeah, so I'm working in all mediums. And what's the other thing you realize is that now I'm sent to Atlanta or London or wherever we're shooting, and I'm doing all this, you know, out of the comfort of my own home, right? So now I, I, you, the writing doesn't really, 
I thought when I got into this, I could sit in my underwear and then sort of send it out, right? And, and but you're you on know. set, yeah. Doing punch up, and I think you talked about it in an interview. Um, being on set for the first time, and when a director needs you to, yeah. we need a new line here. So that happens oh, that's quite a, a bit. Oh, that's yeah. super exciting, right? Yeah. Yeah, and little, it's pressure filled, right? But you run in, and, you know. And Chris Evans is here, and Hugo Weaving is wearing this big, dopey red mask, and the whole place looks like you know the Nazi Alps. You know, and it's and you got to come up with you know something. Because you, you don't have your whiteboard, and it's not like you can take the evening to figure it out. Right. You have to do right. it then, yeah, at yeah. that moment. So yeah. that, that is thrilling. And everyone gets to see your superpower, which is coming up. Hesitation, with, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then when, again, you, you're putting together Infinity War and Endgame, have you at that point mapped out how this is all going to work or not really? Because I know with, like... Any, if you watch any of the Minions movies or any, like, animation is special with that Illumination company, but I know they don't even have Act 3 figured out when they start. Oh. But I'm just talking about even plotting out getting to Endgame where you do with Thanos. Yeah. Like, are you aware of where you're going at that point? Uh, so, in that case, we are uh, just about to shoot Civil War. This is 2015. We get the job to do both of those movies, right? We hesitate only slightly because we knew it would kill us, right? It's a lot of work to do both these things. But we also thought uh, few writers in the history of Hollywood get to do this. This is a big, big project. And so we decide to do it. We come up with 60 pages of ideas. Just again, like the putting everything on the floor, anything that's interesting to us. We just write everything that's interesting to us. And that's how we spend our downtime on Civil War as we're shooting that. We turn that into Marvel and say, please circle things you like, right? It's that simple. And they circle things they like. Uh, and then when we come back from Civil War, August of 2015, we look at those and we say, all right, here are some directions, right? They love this, they love this, they don't like that. Let's head towards the end. And so we spend four months outlining what would become Infinity War and Endgame. At that point, they were just called part one and part two. Um, and that looks like a serial killer's lair, right? That <laughs> yes. is a conference room. There are different colors all over the wall. Because you're trying to figure out what character, you know, you're yeah. plotting, you have probably yep. have a story arc for every single character. All of the OGs through. for sure, yes. right? Because we, one of the, here's what we were handed, you asked yes, this yes, earlier. Yes. Uh, Thanos, um, Infinity Stones, and we should probably say goodbye to some of the original characters. Um, so, that's so who's going to die? Yeah, we got to decide who died. Yes. <laughs> now, to help us there, this is an interesting little tidbit. So, okay, one wall is Infinity War, one wall is Endgame. One wall is a magnetic whiteboard with uh, trading cards that have each character in the Marvel Universe living in dead uh, with their salaries on the back. <laughs> so that was instrumental in deciding. <laughs> sure. Yeah, batting average. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Killing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Killing. Or it would say, yeah. we have this guy for two weeks. We've done, we have this guy for the run of show. You know, and that sort of determines some stuff. Um, and then, you know, in terms of calling in any of your, what has your relationship been like with this massive fandom and, and the uh, sort of Marvel nerds and that world, like, are they, do you have any expert you bring in at that point, or are they already in-house at... Oh, in terms Disney? of, like, the minutiae of characters? Exactly, stuff? yes. 
No, we're kind of the experts at that point. Because the other thing to think about is that we are not being, uh, we're not devoted to the comics, really. By that point, we're devoted to the movies that have come before and the actors that we have been working with and the story we have been telling. And so, sort of as, not, I don't know how guttered a secret this is, the, they always use code names for the film so that when you're driving around Atlanta or London or Los Angeles and you see a yellow sign where the set is that day, it doesn't say Avengers over here, right? Just um, every person turning right. So this one was called Mary Lou 1 and Mary Lou 2 after Mary Lou Retton because the idea was we needed to stick the landing on these movies, right? And so that was a reminder every day that what we were trying to do was stick the landing on this big experiment of 22 movies. I want to talk about the Russo brothers, mm. and um, you are business partners with them at this point. Yep. But these are these are comedy directors. These are people that were sort of responsible for. Is it, are they on Arrested uh, they, they or Community a, as well? They yeah, they're on them. Arrested they the Development. They're on uh, Community, and then. They go into, you know, somehow. I don't even know I can how tell that you. works. Yeah. Yeah, so we had done the first Captain America, and even though that's one of the lower uh, grocers for Marvel, uh, the process was good. They liked us. They liked that movie a lot. It is what it's supposed to be, the sort of love letter to the 40s. Um, and uh, so they hire us to write uh, Captain America 2, which becomes a pretty good Winter Soldier script. Uh, and they say, all right, we're going to go find directors. That's, a, that's when we slid over to do Thor 2, which were, was on fire, and so we tried to put out the fire. Uh, and when we come back, they say, we got directors. You're going to love them. They're from TV. And we go, why would you do this, right? And so we sit down with them, and for the next maybe nine or ten months, we beat up that script together, right? And if that's where our sort of bromance was born, because we all had very similar opinions about stuff and the way we looked at particularly genre movies and they were bringing influences that you know, like Brian De Palma and stuff like that that we just loved so the best thing I can say about them is that um, uh, we start shooting that movie if, you, if anyone's familiar with Captain America Winter Soldier we start shooting the elevator scene and the elevator scene is when Steve Rogers walks into an elevator and then every floor more and more huge dudes get on uh, and it's very clear that something is going to go down, right? Uh, and then it all goes down and he kicks all their asses. Uh, when we started shooting the movie, we've got 80 days to shoot. We have two days to shoot the elevator. We shoot the elevator for four days. That's a problem, right? Because now these comedy guys are already behind. But then they cut it together in a day and they show it to us. And, we, and the whole crew goes, oh, that's awesome, we're in good hands. And so I haven't worried about them since, uh, to the degree that now I've made five movies with them. That's incredible, and started this company, can you tell everyone about yeah. what you're doing there? Uh, the company's called Agbo, which is a silly name, but uh, it's, uh, it's a production company slash studio. So we, uh, we basically get to make our own stuff. So you know, we have a show that comes out tomorrow called Citadel on Amazon. We did The Gray Man last summer. We did Extraction a couple years. Before Extraction Two with Chris Hemsworth comes out this summer, um, we did a uh, we did a movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, uh, we, no Extraction fans, but uh, a lot of, no. <laughs> Extraction was great. Everybody loves Extraction. Uh, Can't wait for Extraction Two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
more extracting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's uh, it's it's going very well. Uh, you know, we've got nice fancy funding, and it and uh, it allows us to sort of pick our own projects, and so that's been really great. Well, that's I mean, and and I think that's a great lesson for anyone younger wanting to get into this. Like, it's it really is fantastic to it's your dream job to work as this screenwriter, and then you sort of realize that you know in this studio system. You are, even though a high-level pawn, you know, like you are... I'm a high-level pawn. Yeah, well, <laughs> in their game. Yeah. Uh, but owning the company that is uh, developing all this material right. is a much cooler place No one be. was going to give me a piece of Paramount. No. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, so we had, again, we were to... I, I have been really, really fortunate to have to move my own goalposts, right? Because I thought, okay, here's my, here was what I want. And then it's like Willy Wonka, right? Like what happens to the little boy who gets, you know who gets everything he ever wanted, he lived happily ever after, you know? Like, yeah. But like, you know, I, I made a bunch of movies, and but I was 40-something, you know? And what am I supposed to do, retire? I can't retire, I actually can't retire, right? So, so what was the next chapter after doing Avengers? It was either maybe direct or something, but I really don't want to do that. I just want to keep working with people that I like. And I don't need to make new friends, so why don't I just, <laughs> why don't I just work with the people that I know? And so the idea of being a producer and helping other writers, you know, sort of find their voices and, and find a path forward, and, and again, calling your own shots was incredibly liberating. It's scary. And, and then I think, you know, as we wrap up here, for a lot of your kids, grandkids, um, and especially what we were trying to do with Anais and the, the Mario Prieto Award, is like inspiring people to get into this business. Um, but to talk about this sacrifice and then the reward that goes along with that, you know, and, and, and taking that time in between Notre Dame and UC Davis yeah. and then going down and sacrificing and, and putting this all together but there is a tremendous amount of sacrifice. There's a lot of getting for coffee sure, and answering. For sure, for sure. I am a 53-year-old man with a four-year-old daughter, right? Because I made, I made, I made choices, right? Uh, uh, and uh, no, I have no regrets. I'm a much better father now than I would have been, you know, at 22. Uh, but uh, all my friends were buying houses, and I was, you know had roommates, you know, it's a, it's a grind. I was 26 with a master's degree and I was licking stamps. That's, it, there's, it, but I, I wanted to give it a try so I didn't live with regret. Uh, and that was really easy to justify. We had this saying, you know, uh, Chris and I uh, had a, um, we shared an apartment when we first got there and we'd wake up at six in the morning and we'd meet in the living room and we would just start typing and, and working and then go off to our day jobs. And, you know, when the, when the alarm rang, I thought to myself, someone else is getting up, right? It would be easy to hit the snooze button, but everyone else is getting up and doing this. There are some, there, my rivals are out there doing this, so I'm gonna do this. And that's the only reason I was in Los Angeles, was to do this. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of putting something out on the board and seeing if your you know, reach can exceed your grasp. Fantastic. Um, I think that's all I got. Steve McFeely, everybody. Let him hear it. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for future interviews, please send them our way. And if you like what you hear, please like and recommend this podcast. The SI Genesis Podcast is a production of St. Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco, California. To learn more about the school and Jesuit education, visit www.siprep.org.